0: Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Hurt It. Hurt It on the sideline with Shotgun Spratling. Spratling. That's right. We're keeping the intro around, at least for now. So thanks again, Chris and Keeley. Welcome to another edition of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling, where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull back the curtain to give you an insider's perspective from the people around the USC athletic programs. The It on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Peristyle podcast family. We're still on the lookout for an official sponsor. Hit me up, guys. So I'm recommending another local restaurant in my neck of the woods. Check out the Sherman in Sherman Oaks. They just recently opened back up, so I picked up some food from there the other day for my roommate's birthday and had some delicious short rib. To adapt the pandemic, they also have draft beer growlers and to-go wine and cocktails, if that's your thing. So if you're in the Valley and looking for a good meal, stop by the Sherman in Sherman Oaks. On today's podcast, we're taking the virtual stroll over to Dado Field to talk about USC baseball. Last year, USC brought in new head coach Jason Gill to try to reinvigorate the program, and the team got off to a strong start. They were 10-5 and with wins over defending national champion Vanderbilt and top 25 TCU the final weekend before the season and the sports world was shut down. Gill came over from Loyola Marymount after 11 years leading the Lions. He's a former Cal State Fullerton player and assistant coach, so he brings that Fullerton grinder mentality with him and brought another former Titan, Ted Silva, over as his pitching coach. Gil will join us momentarily to preview the 2021 season, which gets underway Friday night at Dado against LMU. We also talked to former Arizona State assistant coach and now D1 baseball analyst and ESPN color commentator Mike Rooney about the direction of the Trojans program, and we close out the podcast with a quick segment with crosstown rival UCLA head coach John Savage talking about his memories with former USC head coach and legend, Hall of Famer as well, Mike Gillespie, who passed away unfortunately during the offseason. But first, I want to start with two positives and a negative. I'm going to keep it short this week since we have three guests, but since we're talking USC baseball, one of the positives is Gill provided just what the program needed with discipline and structure. That's what we've seen so far. I think the program's definitely headed in the right direction. That's definitely a positive note. You know, they've had a lot of talent in the past, but they haven't been able to get that talent to play up to its ability, and I think Gill is starting to get that from the program. Number two... They've got some talented young players on this roster. They're going to be with the program or helping make that transition happen. They've got some older players that are going to be important for them this year, but I'm really excited about the talented young players they brought in. Tyrese Turner and Ryland Thomas were freshmen last year, will be freshmen again. And then the true freshmen this year, you got DeAndre Smith, Nate Clow, and then you got Jaden Agassi, the son of former tennis greats Andre Agassi and Steffi Graff. So you talk about some some pedigree there from from him. He's going to be on the mound for the Trojans at some point this year as well. And my negative? Well, the Trojans are the most storied program in Division I college baseball history. They've won 12 national titles. The next closest is six by LSU in Texas. The Trojans haven't won one since 1998, and they made just one postseason appearance since 2005. And there's going to be challenges for them to make the NCAA tournament this year. They've got a tough hill to climb, having to replace their top two starters and their closer. So how does USC fill those voids? We'll talk about that with Jason Gill and Mike Rooney. Now let's bring in our guest, Jason Gill, head baseball coach at USC. Gillie, how you doing? Almost opening day.
1: I'm doing great, Shotgun. Excited. Excited about uh, being able to get back on the field. Really excited for our players, man, who got pulled off, obviously, in, in March, early in the season. And, you know, these guys are just dying to compete. So I'm excited to have them be able to get back out and do what they love.
0: Yeah, obviously you guys were off to a really good start at ten and five. You'd just come off a really big weekend where you beat two top twenty five teams, beat Vanderbilt, beat TCU. What do you kind of learn from last season that you've been able to take through this off season that's been so unique, I guess?
1: Well, I would again, I gotta got give the credit to the players. I mean, we we you know, it's not an easy thing to do when you get a new coaching staff, guys that didn't recruit you, that don't know you that are coming in and telling you to do things way different than have been done before. And for no other reason than it's, this is, you know, this is our way of doing it. And this is the way our coaching staff knows how to teach for them. You know, there was a little resistant, a little resistance at first, but I would say uh, shortly they kind of started trusting us because I I feel like, you know, we were honest with them and we were telling them exactly why we were doing things. And, and, and I feel like they know that, are uh, they knew that things needed to change. So I think what I learned is that you know if you if you treat people with respect and communicate with them, that they'll follow you. And we had a bunch of guys last year that were starting to follow, you know, their coaches. And when when that happens, you know, the chemistry around the ballpark and showing up every day, it's a it's a, a an environment that's conducive for learning. And and when that's going on, people are happy to come, you know, come to the field. So, I feel like that's probably in all that. I know it's kind of a long winded answer, but uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is that, you know, we have a bunch of guys that want to win. They want to bring USC back to national prominence, and they're eager and willing to try things new to do that. So, that's kind of what was going on last year. Not to say that we were, you know, undefeated, uh, but it was definitely a, a positive atmosphere, and we were winning some. Some big games and some close games.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about your guys' philosophies, but I'm gonna to get to that a little bit later. First, we gotta just what, what have you guys been able to do? I mean, how different was this off season and your preparation? Because wow. normally your guys are going to summer ball and play, and you bring them back. You have a fall schedule. All that was much different this year. What what so, what have you guys been able to do so far as far as just the off season and getting prepared for this season?
1: So basically, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to be on campus and do any kind of fall. All the way up until December, our administration, uh, Mike Bone, and uh, all his, you know, all the associate ads, they worked their tails off. Uh, Our whole administration did to get us on on here, onto campus, and be able to practice in December. So, school had already been out. We got a waiver by the NCAA, and we were allowed to be here from December 1st to December 19th. So by the time physicals and everything got all cleared out of the way, we probably got about 11 days together, you know, as a a team. And uh, it was great. There wasn't a lot of we had to be separated so we couldn't all be together at the same time. But it was great because the guys got to get out onto the field and it hadn't been able to. Some of them had been literally hadn't been on a field since March. So it was just fun to be out there. You know, I would say we didn't get a lot. I wouldn't say we didn't get anything done, but there wasn't a lot of system stuff put into play just because, like I said, it was two different groups that uh, were coming out to the field. So it was more individual work. But, again, it was great to get their bodies going. They got to get in the weight room and start lifting again as a group uh, with our strength coach. And so those days were were really important for us. But we didn't, to be honest with you, get a lot done Mm baseball-wide in in the fall. It was more – that December period where we kind of got logistics taken care of, right? <laughs> Especially for our, our new players, right? This is where the, the dorms are. This is where the field is. This is how we, you know, come to the field. You know, so there was a lot of that. You know, this is how we stretch type of stuff going on, which usually happens in September. But, you know, the, the, that, that's what we were given, and we were, we were happy to have it. It, it. it did help us out coming back in January, for sure, 100%
0: and usually you know you you have those freshmen are getting on campus they're able to kind of feel their way through things but obviously no one being on campus it, it's really an interesting thing that you point out where you have to kind of point out which building are you going to to get your meals where are you going to to get uh your your weight lifting done all that type of stuff when you know all that stuff would be kind of taken care of normally much earlier in the year so just a unique unique season unique off season one of the things I was interested in is last fall, it seemed like you guys were kind of breaking everything down and starting from scratch with the fundamentals. And that's not even necessarily from a skill perspective, but you made what you you asked the players to kind of make what you called lifestyle change type of stuff, where you know you yeah. asked them not to to walk on the field, you asked them to to show up clean shaven each day, uh, but you also with some of the skill stuff, you didn't have your pitchers throwing anything but fastballs until late in the process in the fall. You know, you didn't install all your stuff offensively. You know, what were you able to do this offseason, this fall, um, to kind of continue that work? Since, like you said, you're not able to do too much in that, that early process that you had in December.
1: Unfortunately, Shaga, we we weren't able to do a lot. Just again, like I said, we were on Zoom calls, but <laughs> that's a tough environment to learn, and it's a tough environment to learn baseball in, right? Because usually you're working with the mind and the body when you're an athlete. So we did some stuff. We did talk with them a handful of times again, but you know, it's really hard to implement things over zoom. So we weren't really able to do that. So what we decided as a coaching staff is that we're going to start in January and we're going to start just like it was September and we're going to roll them through. We're going to, we're going to try to, obviously we're trying to speed up some of it, but most of it is foundational and it can't be sped up. So if we have to take our lumps early because we're not quite maybe mid-season form or even early season form. That's okay. As long as they eventually get it. And and we've talked to our team about it quite a bit so that they're not frustrated. Like we are going into this opening weekend against LMU and we don't have a lot of our stuff in, but what we have been able to focus focus on on is throwing strikes, playing a good game of catch, putting the ball in play offensively uh, and running the bases intelligently. So, we have those those foundational pieces in place. Now, we just need to open up the playbook a little bit more. you know, Fortunately, we don't start conference for until our fifth weekend. So, like I said, we may take some lumps early. We may be learning against LMU and against Nevada, Reno, and against our other opponents in the preseason, but we will be learning and we will be getting better. But you can't rush some of the stuff that we ask them to do, right? You just can't. If you do, you end up... You know, not having a foundation, and, and I know it's a, an analogy, but it's like building a house, right? If you don't build the foundation, right, it's not going to be a very sturdy house. So we have to put those things in so that we can make a run at anything or reach our full potential, you know, by by April, May, and June.
0: Yeah, you talk about playing LMU to to open the season. Obviously, playing your former team because you were the head coach of LMU before coming to USC. But this is a reschedule weekend. You know, you were initially going to go to travel to Miami. How difficult has it been to put together a schedule this season? How everything's kind of become more regionalized, not as much travel, and you know, uh, there's some conferences that, that just aren't playing. You know, non-conference series on the weekends or not playing during the midweek. How, how different has it been to try to put together a schedule this this off season?
1: Well, it's definitely definitely different, and I think the people on the West Coast are hoping that the, you know, the NCAA committee doesn't weigh too much on the RPI because we feel like we're slided in that already, but now that none of us can go outside of our area to compete to raise RPI, you know, it's made it quite difficult, but in terms of who we're playing, we were supposed to go to Miami, and obviously COVID uh, put a stop to that, so we were lucky enough to match up with LMU and be able to play them, you know, right across town. Uh, not something that I think, you know, personally on a personal level that I would want to do. I've coached some of those young men. I've recruited some of those young men. It's going to be emotional for me to see them uh, and be in another uniform. But in terms, you know, in terms of the rest of the schedule, we were pretty fortunate just based on the fact that you know Nevada Reno that was their bye week that we had them, so it didn't affect. Their conference schedule and they can play us. We have Dixie State in the midweek that didn't really affect them. Or not a midweek on our bye week we have Dixie State, so that did not affect us. Uh, the Dodger Town Classic with UCLA, you know, that kind of got mixed and matched around, and, and Coach Savage did a great job of getting Fullerton and Pepperdine in there, so we don't have the typical out of out of conference or out of area teams coming into play in that one. But really, you know, kind of hurt was the midweeks, and and we're we're down some games. I think we're at 52, maybe 53. Hopefully, 53 by the end of the day. But yeah, that's where it hurt because the Big West, you know, they kind of knocked out all their midweeks and they're playing four-game weekends. And you know, obviously, a lot of our opponents here locally are Big West teams, so that's been kind of an issue. But we were able to put together a couple other midweeks. Fresno State, we were able to get them and. Uh, also, USD, so we'll do a home-and-home home with both of those, which obviously aren't ideal for us just because we typically we have so many options closer to campus. But in COVID times, we'll be able to still get our guys out there and competing, which is the most important thing.
0: Yeah, it's been a, uh, an off season full of unique challenges. One of the other ones, and I always tell people, I think the most difficult thing in all of athletics is Division One baseball recruiting because you're not only dealing with trying to assign, you know, the best freshmen that you can bring in, but also keeping them from going in the draft, then you're trying to balance that with, you know, the limited scholarships that the Division 1 baseball is allowed and your juniors that that may be going in the draft, you're trying to talk them into coming back. All those different things, those different elements into it. How difficult has been balancing your scholarship money this year with, you know, the fact that you you have so many different kind of factors that play in with the seniors being allowed to come back. And then also with the number of freshmen that are going to be added to your roster to now you have a, an expanded roster, how difficult has it been balancing the scholarship money, but also the expanded roster that you have this season?
1: Hey, it's, it's been extremely difficult. And, and, you know, we've had a handful of families, you know, really have to step up and move money around and do things just to make this particular year work, let alone the next two it's been really difficult, Chuck. That's a great, you know, that's a great question or statement by you because I, I really feel, you know, for some of these young kids, these seniors and juniors and sophomores in high school, and, you know, the recruiting goes all the way down to freshman year now, but those, those sophomore and freshmen they'll be fine. But some of the stuff that's going on in terms of, you know, how guys are getting offered scholarships by, you know, video or streaming, you know, uh, I just think it's, I think it's, I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think a lot of these families are gonna get told that they're they're not going to be able to go to the prospective universities that they agreed to go with just because by the time they get on the field, so much will have changed, and teams haven't seen a play live. You know it's really hard to recruit a guy off swings on video or off stream mm-hmm. um, you can you can identify bat speed and you can identify foot speed and arm strength to some you know, to some degree, but it's really hard to identify whether they can play baseball in a game and be a winner for your team. And so I just, I, I, I feel for a lot of the families out there. I feel for, you know, the universities that are trying to do things right and, and not the universities that are bringing in, you know, 40, 50 kids or have a 27 person recruiting class. Those guys will be fine because they do it every year, but there's some universities out there that try to do things right that are, that are going to suffer a little bit because of it.
0: How have you guys tried to to deal with recruiting this year? Obviously, in in, college, in high school baseball, college baseball, the recruiting a lot of it is done a couple of years in advance, like you said. Um, but you obviously haven't been able to go and see anyone play. You know, the NCAA rules are not allowing coaches to go out, and obviously, in Southern California, uh, there's no baseball being played right now. So how have you guys kind of tried to uh, attack the recruiting process when you're basically having uh, so far, you know, uh, a year that you're not being able to go out and and look at players in live element?
1: Well, I think a a lot of it has to do with, Hey, you know, hopefully we had been able to see him at a camp or at a game prior to all the COVID going down, which Mm -hmm. every day it goes by, makes it harder and harder for that to have happened. And then also relying on your networking and your connections. I mean, we have, People all over the state and all over the West and even in the Midwest with Teddy's ties that we trust and that are telling us, Hey, this guy's real, that they're watching them compete daily. So you got to be a little bit careful, but you know, at some point you're going to have to trust your, your, your relationship with those guys that have been helping us for 25, 30 years, you know? And so that's kind of how we're doing it. We're, we're doing it with video. We, you know, I felt like the zoom thing, believe it or not, has been a benefit. Because uh, the in-house visit has been something that is has been, is gone by the wayside because you're not allowed to go into a sophomore's house, right? He's not old enough per NCAA rule. But now, if a sophomore wants to Zoom with me, he can reach out to me on a Zoom call, and I can get in front of him and his family, and I can talk with them, and they can see my expressions. They can hear the passion in my voice, and vice versa. I get to see how they relate with their parents, if they're respectful or disrespectful. I can see... A lot of different things on the Zoom, which I like, shotgun. I, I really do, because it's all, you know I, I really feel like the in-house. I, I used to love going in home years ago, when that's what you did, right? I, I felt like I felt like I had an advantage there, and I felt like it helped us out a lot because I could read people a lot better in person, or at least seeing them as opposed to talking to you know a 16 year old on the phone, <laughs> right, without his parents there, right or speakerphone. It's just, you know, you don't know what's going on and you don't know what their body language is like. And you don't know if they're sincerely interested, but on a zoom call, you can figure a lot of those things out. And so I, I you know, I, I feel like that's kind of helped out quite a bit in, in getting to know families and to see if they're the right fit for USC, because we, that's how we recruit. We, we don't just recruit based on talent. We have to find the right fit for our university and for how coach, you know, for our coaches, how we teach. Right. You know, we like to instruct, we like to coach and we like to be honest. And if that's not right for somebody, then they need to know that they need to hear it from me and they need to see me talking about that. And again, like I said, it's also good for us to see them. So that Zoom thing's really been beneficial. I don't know why we weren't using it before, but <laughs> it, it, see, at least I like it. And I'll I'll continue to do that uh, with those underclassmen that we're not able to to, you know, to visit. But again, it's been difficult because like you said, it, it is all on video and stream and word of mouth. And so it makes it a lot difficult. You have to be really selective because obviously you don't want to bring people into your team or into your family that, that aren't going to work with you, right. That don't fit in with you and what you're trying to do. You know, in our case at USC, we're trying to, you know, bring the most storied baseball program in the history of college baseball back to the top, which isn't an easy task. It takes a lot of takes a lot of guts to, to do that and a lot of courage, and we're trying to find those kind of kids.
0: It's interesting that that you're able to find a positive. So uh, always looking for, for something bright to come out of this pandemic. So I'm glad that you, you've been able to find one thing there. You talk about the philosophy that you guys have and, and you know the, the culture you're trying to build. How do you think the players have kind of taken to your philosophies you know, on the current roster and even the recruits that you're talking to? And also, you know, you talk about Ted Silva and what he's done on the pitching side. You know, what, How have the pitchers taken to his philosophies as a pitching coach?
1: There's a handful of answers in there. I think the culture, and I've said this to you before, the culture is really set by the players. Also, all we can do is lead them to the water. They have to drink it, right? We have to tell them this is what a championship team does. This is how winners behave. Right, this is this is what you do when you are a winner. You do everything you do. You try to win at right. So we're just trying to bring that to their attention. It's like if you look at the the best players in our game, they're good at everything they do. Or they they're trying to compete at a lot of different things. So for us, you got to compete in the classroom. You got to compete when you're trying to be a citizen, right? And you got to compete compete on the baseball field. That's got to be every day. So. That's kind of the culture that we're trying to bring in. It's, it's a culture of competition, but it's also, you know, about best effort and giving your best effort in the classroom. And not that you have to be a straight A student, but giving your best effort, right? You can get a, give a best effort in a very difficult class and give, get a C and still feel good about your, yourself, right? And if you're doing those things and you feel good about yourself when you come to the field, you have a better chance of improving your swing, improving your pitching, improving your defense, improving your base running. Because it's just a, you feel good, right? That's, that's an everyday deal. So I think that's kind of the, the culture that we're trying to bring. It's just, it's not rocket science. It's, this is what winners do. They, they behave that way in everything that they do. They try to be a champion at everything that they do. It doesn't mean that they're going to be a champion at everything, but it gives them the best opportunity to be a winner at the end of the day. And so, you know, that kind of leads me to the pitching side of it. I'm fortunate because Coach Silva is not a cookie-cutter coach. He can adapt to many different ways of pitching, many different styles, if you you might right, and you know as long as as long as they're you know if they're as long as they're receiving him as I guess his information I should say as long as they're listening to what he has to say, then he's going to get them better. So for me, I couldn't have you know had a better a pitching coach to come into a situation where you have you know a bunch of guys that maybe needed some direction, but were doing things in many different ways. There wasn't one way that they were doing it. So he takes the individual, and he enhances the individual. So we have guys that are on different throwing programs. There's not one throwing program now. They all have similarities you know, mm-hmm. to keep them healthy and build arm strength and all those things, but he's a chameleon. He can handle many different types of people and many different time, types of ways of going about it, which is a unique thing. So they've taken to him... And, you know, they try it and they have success. And anytime time you do that, you're going to believe it, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, it's, it's not just he's making up stuff. He's good. So they try what he asks them to try. They get better. Then they listen. And that's no different than me or any other coach. If you're sitting there preaching something and they say, okay, I'm going to try that. And they do it and it works. They're going to listen to what you say next. Yeah,
0: right? and he takes over you know a pitching staff and that has some talent on it obviously and last year we we saw that and a couple of those guys end up getting drafted you know you get Kyle Hurt gets drafted and then John Beller gets signs as an undrafted free agent you you lose your closer and Ben Wanger so you have some big pieces that are coming back because of the uniqueness again uh, another unique thing of the draft only being 5 rounds this last year rather than 40 so some players were coming back but the pitching staff was hit a little bit who has stepped up to maybe fill in some of the, those roles after you lose a couple key pieces in that on that pitching staff?
1: Well, I think you know you got your standard. You got you know Isaac Escada, who started a couple games for us last year, and then was going to you know probably bounce back and forth from a starting role to a relief role. He's just that kind of guy. So he's probably got our most well, not probably he has our most game experience and our most big game experience and. He's our most consistent guy that we have on our staff. So he will pitch in, in some, you know, in, in a starting role on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, just because you know what you're getting, right? You're getting a guy that's going to go out there and compete his tail off and he does everything right. His defense is going to play really good behind him and he throws strikes. You know, it's not 96. It's not over the top power stuff, but it's it's good enough. Uh, and he believes in, in our system. So, He's done a very good job of, of leading, uh, just as he always has. I, I think Chandler Champlain has has stepped up a little bit, and we have high hopes that that will continue. Uh, you know, obviously, until you are out there in between the lines when the lights are on or you're playing against another uniform, you know, that's when the rubber meets the road, and we'll see how that goes. But so far, he's been a bright spot for us. Uh, you know, in our January scrimmages, we have you know other guys. You know, Alex Cornwell who, you know, had four starts for us last year and was kind of learning on the fly. He was a junior academically last year, but literally those four starts were his only four college experiences ever in his his third year. So, you know, it's kind of a unique situation. So you would think, well, you got one of your starters back, which is true, but he's logged a total of like 20 innings in his life at Mm -hmm. this level. So he still needs to learn a lot in game. Now, I will tell you that he's gotten bigger and stronger and his velocity's up, and, you know, he's looking good. So there's another guy that's that's really stepped up for us. Uh, Gurski, who went on Tuesdays for us last year, has done a good job uh, of getting his body in a better place. and He's continuing to throw strikes. I don't think he gave up an earned run last year in, like, 12 innings, maybe 11 and two-thirds, something like that uh, in the midweek. So, He's good. And then we're, you know, we got high hopes for some of our our younger guys, like, you know, like Agassi, who comes in as a freshman, uh, who had Tommy John surgery. She's like going on 20 months now. It's been a long time, but he didn't pitch much his junior year because of that. And then his senior year with the COVID thing, he was supposed to come back at the back end, but never got to throw. But I think he's got a chance to be, you know, a a star on the weekends in the Pac-12. And Charlie Hurley maybe a little bit less known of a player out of Northern California, six, seven, a right hander. You so know, that's a low of mid nineties arm that coach Silva who was a water polo player. He doesn't have a lot of experience under his belt, but he's a talented kid that we're looking forward to watching him develop as well. So we have, you know, there's a handful of guys in there that can get stuff done. And like I said, there's not a lot of experience, right? So you're talking about like not a lot of starting big game experience. So you go in there probably thinking on paper, that's, Maybe our weakest link, but we'll see.
0: One of the names, obviously, that stands out to people is Agassi. You know, Jaden Agassi is the the son of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf. What's it going to be like for you when when Andre is trying to come over the net, you know, to to argue a call, you know, to help you out to, as a coach? You're going to have to hold him back or anything? I'm not holding him back. Are
1: you <laughs> kidding me? He's one of the best athletes the planet's ever seen. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not getting in his way. Uh, You know what? You know, Jade's his own man, uh, Shotgun, to be honest with you. We don't really even talk about that. I don't even think I've ever brought it up. He's going to make a name for himself in this sport, I believe. But, yeah, it's kind of neat. You know, it's obviously really cool that his mom and dad are, you know, superstar athletes. That's really neat.
0: What kind of – you know mindset does he bring because you know obviously with parents like that you know he's there's going to be a competitive nature in that household you tell me about his maybe his mindset as a pitcher on the mound
1: well again like you know without having a fall i've seen him on the mound three weekends and a total of let me say nine innings so far (laughs) so i don't have a really good feel he's (laughs) learning like every other freshman that learns but like i told you And I told – I just had a conversation with our coaching staff two days ago about it because it's frustrating to watch our team right now. You know, we know we're supposed – we we should be better than what we're doing in our inter-squad games. And I just reminded them, like, guys, we're in October right now. We cannot get upset. If this was, you know, the end of November, we could be a little bit more mad. But these are the lumps you take in early October. This is what it looks like, and that's what we look like. And just like at the end of November, you're a lot happier with the team, at the end of February, at the end of March, you're going to be a lot happier with our team. So I have to keep that in perspective, and so, so do our coaches and, and our players do too. Uh, and they trust us. But uh, with, with a guy like Agassiz, I certainly don't have all the answers to what he is as a competitor yet. You know, I've I've seen some glimpses. I know he's pretty tough. He took a comebacker off the leg the other day and finished his outing. You know, no problem. So he's got he's got a level of toughness and competitiveness that he wasn't going to come out of an inter-squad game. And it was a, I mean, it was a rocket off of his leg and he finished it and didn't complain and kept throwing strikes. So yeah, you can see the, that there's something inherent in there, (laughs) but that's the first sign of it for me. Other than that, you know, he's got a, again, he's a freshman. He's, he's pitching in arguably the best conference in the country, amateur baseball. There's going to be some rough roads ahead, but, He's athletic. He's going to learn. He's talented. It's going to be fun to watch.
0: With, with talking, how you said that you kind of you feel like you're in October right now. Does that mean you need to rely on those veteran guys on the offensive side a little bit more? You bring back Jamal O'Gwynn. You bring back um, Ben Ramirez. You bring back Clay Owens. Those guys are probably gone last year in the draft. How, having them back, do you have to rely on them a little bit more as you know as the veteran guys to kind of lead you early in the season?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that our offense, you know, if you're again, like you, you're saying you're looking on paper, our offense and our defense are our strengths. And I don't know which one's better. I mean, our, our defense has a chance to be well above average or special, maybe and, and our offense. I feel like it, it got a little bit better than last year. But I think I think pretty much a lot of teams feel that way, shotgun, because of the draft. Right and who they got coming in out of high school that they wouldn't have had or who they have still on their team that they wouldn't have kept for us it's O'Gwen, owens and ramirez there's no way those guys are with us if there's a 20 if there's a 10 round draft we probably lose all three right so yeah our offense is, is definitely gonna have to step up and and do what they're capable of doing now Um, I feel like that's the same every year, but with ours early, it would help if they got hot early. Now, I'm not going to put any pressure on them just based (laughs) on the fact that, well, I mean, it's hard to get hot offensively early in the year. It just is, especially in Southern California. You know, you're playing in the evening on Fridays and some Saturdays, you know, the the ocean air, and it's a little chillier. I'm not going to complain because it's definitely not like the rest of the country, but it's a little chillier at night, you know, and the, the ball doesn't travel. So, uh, you know, until until, you know, you'll see a lot of offenses on, in Southern California on the West Coast heat up, you know, right around mid-April when the weather starts warming up and, you know, daylight savings is gone and some of those night games turn into evening games. And so, again, I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on them, but sure, I think they know that that's our strength. I mean, it's it's hard to lie about it, right? We got some older guys and thick, meaty middle of the lineup guys and You know, we have a couple little water bugs at the top of the lineup that can get on base and cause havoc on the bases. So, yeah, we're excited to see how that goes. I can tell you right now we're not firing on all pistons, but we feel like we will be here shortly. And when we do, it could be special.
0: Yeah, It's a unique offense. You, you talk about how you got those, those older veteran you know, boppers in the middle a little bit, but also you have some young stars you know, that you can use at the top of the lineup, you know, at the bottom of the lineup to turn the lineup over. Tyrese Turner, Rylan Thomas, true freshman DeAndre Smith. What's your excitement level with, with that young group um, and, and what they're potentially going to be able to do as Trojans with the, the athleticism and the different things that they can do, the skills that they have uh, with the bat and on the base pass?
1: Yeah, I mean our young players are really exciting. I mean I'm really excited about them. I mean they, you know, even yeah, you know, like there's guys that you, you know that maybe aren't as famous uh, as as those. DeAndre Smith, who who came in with some back issues, so he's going to be out for a little bit, but he should be back by week three or four. Nothing major, no surgery, but just rest. But he's a special player. We got a little glimpse of him in December, and it's you know it's a clean glove. It's a sure-handed defender. He can play the left side of the infield. He can play anywhere, really, to be honest with you. But he can play short for sure. Nate Klo, kid we got out of Washington, uh, has a chance to be a special bat. He's a two-way player that's also going to be on the mound for us this first year for sure. There's uh, there's a Garrett Gilmet, who is a catcher out of Servite, who I think, you know, I've I, I've been doing this for a while. He's, he's pretty talented behind the plate. I mean, it's, it's special arm strength. It's, it's uh but he shut down a running game. It's that, it's that kind of arm. He receives fine and he's got some pop in the bat. Um, so we we're looking forward to watching some of these younger guys develop. You know, there's a handful of others, Wells, Wickley, you know, there's a handful of other guys in there that are, that are going to be bright stars here in the future. One of
0: the things that there's, been a lot of talent come through usc there's been a number of years where there's been several guys be drafted but the usc teams haven't always put it together what's the biggest key for your teams to do that going forward this year and in the years in the future
1: well again chuck i i I think it goes back to maybe something that you mentioned earlier you know you got it you gotta you gotta win big games like so those two wins that we had last year you know it's preseason and it didn't It wasn't to go to Omaha or to go to the postseason. But those kind of wins, they get, you know, they garner a little confidence for your team. And I feel like uh, you have to be confident. We have talent, right? And, And they've had talent here at SC for a number of years. But you have to learn how to win. And I feel like last year's team was doing that, you know, going back to that earlier question. They were learning how to win. And unfortunately, while we were still learning how to do that, and how to work week to week, you know, we got we got the rug pulled out from underneath us like everybody else, so we never got to continue to learn how to win, right? And then, you know, we felt last year that we were capable of going into the postseason. Now, it's a long season. And the Pac-12 is not an easy conference,
2: so you never know.
1: But we felt like we had that caliber of a team, and we felt like we had some winners, guys that were learning how to win. As you could tell in the TCU and Vanderbilt game, both one-run games, both uh, high-pressure situations for closers and defenses and offensive players getting down butts and moving guys over and things like that. And they were getting it done at a high level. So, again, going to answer your question, I feel like we just got to continue to learn how to win so that when we get into those championship environments, we're comfortable and confident. Comfortable, I don't know if that is the right word, but confident that we that we can go there and win and we can hold a one-run lead for three innings. Right. And we know how to do that because it's been done over and over again. So I think until you do it, it's just all hot air. Right. So we got to do it. And there's no way around it. Our players know that they know that we have to do it. No one's going to give it to us. And no one's sad that we haven't been at the top of college baseball in the last 20 years. Right. Except for us, SC fans. (laughs) Right. Our fans, our alumni and, and the players here, we're sad about it. But that's it. Other than that, everyone wants to hold us down. And our players know that. So like I said earlier in the conversation, just like the guys who recruit, recruited, it takes a tough individual to overcome those things, right? When you don't have the world pulling for you, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But I feel like our guys are up for the challenge and they're excited to go about it. So we're, we're in a decent place mentally.
0: I hear the excitement in your voice, especially when you bring up the games from last year. Why should USC fans be excited about the direction of the program?
1: I feel like last year should give you a taste of the excitement, right? Ten and five, winning big games early. I feel like there's just momentum going in the right direction in a lot of different areas. It's not just our baseball program. In our athletics department, there's been a lot of really positive things that have happened, right? And so I feel like uh, all those things are contagious around uh, around us. And, you know, again, it's hot air about talking about it, but I, I would just reach out to our fans and tell them, you know, it's not going to be for a lack of effort. The work's going in. The, the work is being put in by your team, by your players. And you know, when you start combining uh, hard work with talent, you start you start getting that word "lucky" that rolls around. Well, those guys are really lucky. Yeah. Well, they work really hard and they're talented. So is it really luck? Um, but I feel like that's what we kind of have going on right now. We got a bunch of guys that are have learned or are learning how to work at a at a different level to get what they want right? Nothing's going to be handed to them. And so they're understanding that. So I think, you know, to get excited about that, just knowing that the the product you're going to see on the field is going to be a hardworking bunch of guys that don't, don't take anything for granted.
0: Thank you, Gilly for so much, taking so much time with us. I really appreciate it. I got one last question for you. Unfortunately, this off season we lost Coach Mike Gillespie. Uh, Skip, you know, passed away. Led USC the nineteen ninety eight uh, national championship was so successful as a USC coach. Give me your best Skip story uh, of facing him or coaching against him. Coaching, you know, as a player or as a coach.
1: No oh, man, I mean, hey, look, he, <laughs> you know, you guys, I've talked to you about this before. Shotgun, his war was like thirteen. <laughs> so if you remove him from a team, a college team. They lose thirteen more games than they win and and so every time you go into to to play him, you're going in there to learn from the moment you walk on the field, watch batting practice, you went in there to learn from him Maybe at least I did, and uh, you know he was always so jovial and so so interested in what you had to say and, and, and you know and I'd ask him, "Hey, is there any time we could sit down and have coffee and you could help me and he'd just laugh at me and say, "You know more than I do," which was a lie. <laughs> And, and, you know, he would be really happy before the game and then he would split part ways and then he was your enemy. He was your enemy until that game was over. You know what I mean? He wanted, he wanted to beat you as bad as he wanted to beat anybody in the world, whether it was his best friend, friend of his, or, you know, some foes that he had, I'm sure out there. But one story that I can tell is we we're when I was in LMU early in the earlier days, we had this trick play. It's kind of a first and third offensive. It's a tricky play and it's legal by rule, but it's. And if you saw this play, it's quite different. The, my base runner at first ran, runs all the way to the back cut of the grass to take his lead at first base. And it's really confusing to the defense because no one's ever really seen it. And we, the first time we did it, we did it against Coach Gillespie because I knew that he would either appreciate it or tell me the truth and tell me to never do it again. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> He was an honest man. So one of two things was coming. He was either going to wear me out, air me out, or he was going to, after the game, say that was the best thing he's ever seen. Well, we, we put this play on, and while it's going on, his team has thrown the ball all over the place. Now, they haven't given up a run, and as it's going on, he literally is walked like, like it was practice. He walked from the dugout all the way to the foul line, telling his guys where to throw the ball. <laughs> and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And, and then after the game, he told me it was a great play, and he was, how did I figure it out, and all this kind of, kind of thing. And then he told me the next year that his team practiced defending that until their arms hurt uh, <laughs> for the whole next year. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's a funny story. It's just it's one that pops into my mind because he was such a clever man. He was he was so great to uh, to learn from, and he was he loved trick plays. He loved the double you know the double squeeze, and he he was so innovative. Uh, the steal at home with two strikes and two outs in Omaha. I mean, just so much courage that he had and, and shared with his players. And there's not a player that played for him here that, that doesn't miss him, um, probably either daily or, or weekly or all the time just because he's such a special man and did so much for USC, our program, and really those, those, young, those young men and, and developing them into being great citizens and leaders in our community
0: yeah he was a, a terrific coach, but also from everyone I've talked to and my interactions with him a great person as well a really quick i I, I know it's a you know've held you for so long, but he he also gave you a vote of confidence you know when you were a young coach as well. I remember you telling me the story of, of him you know uh, giving you a little bit of extra confidence as as a young coach, letting you kind of know that that you were gonna you were on the right path i guess
1: yeah well he, i i was try i was i was working uh, as a volunteer at cal State Fullerton and he had a job position. I wasn't even working as a volunteer. I was like field maintenance manager at Fullerton at the time. And he had a a volunteer position, that volunteer slot open at USC. And so I was coaching out in the Midwest in a summer ball league. And I had sent applications uh, via mail, not email, via (laughs) mail to 21 colleges that I would want to go to and either be a graduate student or learn from that coach or be at that university. And he was the only one that got back to me. Of the 21, I went to, I mean, it was Miami, Ohio State, Texas, you know, a big 12 schools, ACC schools, SEC schools. And really, you know, I think the only Pac-12 school was USC. I wanted, you know, I just had so much respect for him growing up in the area. And uh, he called me back. He's the only one that called me back off that letter. And he called me to tell me I didn't have the job. <laughs> he had already given it to Andy Nieto. But he knew who I was. And he basically just said, you know what? You're going to be a great coach. You're not going to be a good coach. And this is how he would talk to you. You're going to be a great coach. And I'm sorry that I don't get to have you with our program right now. But if anything ever opens up, you will be the first conversation that I'll have. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Like, what a vote of confidence for a 24-year-old kid trying to make his way into this. I didn't even know Mike Gillespie knew my name. <laughs> and he knew he knew where I had been. He knew where I played junior college. He knew, he knew about me. And that was like a huge boost of confidence for me, huge.
0: Well, Gilly, thank you so much for sharing that story. And you know, we we hope that everyone can remember Michael Espy. Uh, you know, terrific coach at, at USC. Um, and, and you know, hope that everyone. Got a chance to meet him and got a chance to experience something similar uh, to to you as well. But thank you so much for taking the time and and joining me and and spending some extra time, actually, to to talk a little USC baseball. And and good luck this season as you guys get started this weekend. Thanks, Shotgun. Fight on. Now, it seems a little dangerous bringing a Notre Dame grad on to talk about USC, but I'm going to do it anyways. So welcome D1 Baseball national analyst and ESPN color commentator, Mike Rooney, to the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast, Runes, So glad you could join us.
2: Shadi, thanks for having me. And it's a good point. If you were bringing me on to talk about USC football, you would see a not very mature side of me. Now, (laughs) USC baseball, I love talking USC baseball, but USC football I was raised to not like Trojan football. So you're right, we would have a tough time undoing that wiring in a short amount of time.
0: So basically what you're telling me is Reggie Bush is your favorite player of all time.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's Oh, just just hearing his name makes me shudder. That heartbreaking <laughs> Bush push. Come on. <laughs> Oh my gosh.
0: Heartbreaking. I think I think our listeners would would disagree with your assessment of that that individual play there, but
2: <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Well said.
0: Alas, we'll we'll talk about about that off air. Tell me about the Trojans now. The USC baseball program, obviously one of the most storied in, in college baseball history, if not the most storied. They started off 10 and 5 last year. They finished with a pair of top 25 wins that final weekend. So, what did you kind of think of, of the job Jason Gill in his first year did with USC?
2: Yeah, I I would say, Shadi, like, I'm really excited about USC's baseball program right now. I think Jason Gill is was a really good hire. You know, I think Gilly is giving the Trojans an identity. You know, obviously, I think what he did at Loyola Marymount, they were just so consistent and so you know, top of a really good league consistently. You know, I think Gabe Alvarez is a really good recruiter. I think Gabe is. With the new college baseball situation with a smaller draft, I think Gabe's recruiting style will really play well there. Um, you know, I think bringing Tud Silva back is fantastic. I mean, Bobby Andrews, you know, as your volunteer coach, come on. I mean, that's, a, if I'm not mistaken, Shadi, three of the four of those guys have national championship rings in college baseball. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I just, I'm really excited about the the, where the program's going, you know, I I would caution everyone that you can't flip it overnight. And you know, I, I think even last year the ten and five record, there's parts of it you could pick at, and there's you know these two really loud wins over TCU and Vanderbilt. So, you know, I I I think I'm I'm cautiously optimistic for 2021, but I'm really optimistic for 21 and beyond.
0: Now, Roons, you recently picked USC eighth in your Pac-12 preview on D1 Baseball. This is where I'd add an audience kind of grown track if this was a sitcom. Uh, but sure. walk, walk me through your thought process of having USC eighth uh, for this season, uh, the preview that you had for him.
2: Yeah, well, I think um, a couple things. You know, I think the middle of the Pac-12 is really jumbled and hard to figure out. And I would include, you know, USC in that group. I mean, hey, I picked Stanford ninth. I can't even tell you how uncomfortable that made me feel, <laughs> but it's, you know, one of the things in this year, as you know, Shadi, from doing previews is if you're a team, you know, the draft was very kind to college baseball. Right. We went from a 40 round draft to a five round draft. And so if you were a team that the draft was not kind to, then, you know, in many ways, at least for me, I punished you. And, you know, for USC, you lost your best two arms who are, you know, really good. Uh, in Kyle Hurt and John Beller, and you lost your closer in a two-way player, a two-way performer in Ben Wanger. So, you know, those in a year where very few teams had losses, those are really big losses. Now, all that said, I'm very encouraged by the talent level on this roster. I think think there's some really good young talent on here. And, 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 you know, another thing that gives me pause is USC really didn't get a fall season to kind of acclimate some of that young talent. So, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where somebody has to be the eighth place team in a league that's very deep in talent. And I I think losing those three really critical arms and not, you know, having a younger roster where you don't get to break them in over the fall. I think, you know, that, that kind of is where you end up.
0: Yeah. How does USC replace those frontline starters that they lost? Kyle hurt, obviously being a draft pick just recently got traded to the Dodgers. Actually, Um, you know, what do they do to, to fill in those gaps there?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, um, the new arms are, are guys that have been fine. You know, Isaac Esqueda, I, I may have mispronounced that, but, you know, I, I, they're going to have three lefties in the rotation, Esqueda and Alex Cornwell and Brian Gersky. I mean, those are all interesting guys that have had success in their career. You know, I, I, you know are they going to replace Beller and Hurt with that type of power? No, they, they don't have those kind of arms. You know, I think Hooping Garner and, and Chandler Champlain in the bullpen, like those are two premium arms, and that, that is interesting you know, if those, if those guys can continue to grow. And, you know, I think Champlain, there's so much hype for him coming into college and, and you know, if he can continue to progress, I mean, this is a big arm. This is a kid that everybody recruited. So, um, Jaden is really interesting. You know, uh, obviously that's, that's serious athletic pedigree with, with, <laughs> with, his parents. And, um, you know, he's a big name. So I just, you know, I, I like the raw materials. It's just way less proven than if, you know, a Beller and a Hurt and a Wanger were back.
0: Yeah, definitely. One thing that USC does have going for them, and I talked about this a little bit with Gilly earlier, but, you know, they returned the the beefy middle of their lineup. I mean, you get Jamal O'Gwen, you got Ben Ramirez, Clay Owens. Those three guys wouldn't be around if they had the normal 40-round draft rather than the five-rounder they had last year. And you're high on O'Gwen in particular. You know, What do you think uh, about him and, and that middle of the order? Can it carry the Trojans enough?
2: Yeah. I mean, Gwen is even when he first came to campus, you know, you 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 just kind of you, you you heard the name and, you know, he's a Fresno kid. And it's like, hey, we got a six, 220 pound athlete that we think's got a legit hit tool. And, you know, like what's not to like about that? I mean, that, that's a heck of a profile. And, you know, you start to look at it and this he's, you know, each year has grown. He, he got a lot of playing time as a freshman and took his lumps. And then his second year just progressed. And then last year he was on the verge. I mean, the OPS through the 14 games was 1.044. I mean, he was on the verge of putting together a monster season, but we just didn't get to see it come to fruition. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's a guy that you got, if you're USC, you got to be really, really excited about. And, you know, I don't, I don't think he's the only guy that they've got there. I mean, Clay Owens is a guy who's really interesting. I I think about kids like Rylan Thomas and Tyrese Turner I mean, that's where you start to think some of the younger talent on this roster, really athletic kids that I also think fit into the category what you're talking about, where, man, those are it's hard to get that level of athlete to a college campus. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. They've got a lot of athleticism, like you talked about with those guys. they got a little pop in the middle. They should play really good defense after the first couple of weeks probably because one of the things that is a concern about USC and also some other programs on the West Coast is just – That fall ball, you know, the action that they didn't get. USC got some in. Some programs didn't get to practice at all. Some are still, you know, trying to get back to to action. I mean, I talked to Long Beach State head coach Eric Valenzuela, and I think they began practice yesterday for the first time since the shutdown uh, in March last year. So, you know, how do you kind of see the pandemic and the effects of, you know, the practice time? How is that going to affect the baseball, the college baseball being played on the West Coast this year?
2: Yeah, I'm with you, Shadi, very concerned. You know, I think just being sharp, baseball is a sport of repetitions, as you know, and just being sharp. So I'm I'm of two minds. My first concern is the first few weeks of the season, where not only do you not have a lot of repetitions under your belt, but then you throw in the anxiety of every opening day, people are anxious, and then these kids really haven't played in a year. So that's part one. and And, you know, I think the talent level will get those kids through it. But what I do get concerned about for the second half of the season, and we've all been through this as baseball people, where the results start poorly and you start chasing results. So I think these coaches on the West Coast are going to have a real – um, that's going to be a real challenge on their hands of just getting the kids to kind of forgive themselves. If the beginning of the season starts out a little choppy and almost restart themselves if, if it does go that way. So, but I, I think the, the, the summary of it shot is I don't know what to expect. I mean, this is, you know, all of this is unprecedented, but I mean, these kids have basically taken a year off from baseball and now we're going to throw them in the middle of the pack 12 in, in arguably the most talented version of the league in 10 years. I mean, it's, it's pretty daunting.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to say the least. Uh, I mean, normally the West Coast you see a lot of teams come out from the Midwest, uh even from the South and coming across the country to play. You know, the weather's much better here than the northern teams, but that's not really going to happen this year. Unfortunately, for us at uh, covering uh, you know the sport out here, we don't get to see all those teams coming into Arizona, coming into Southern California. There's going to be much more regionalized schedules. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have, just overall, on the the West in general? Uh, that you know they're not going to play a bunch of teams from outside, and so the the national opinion may be a little bit different on the on the groups out here.
2: Yeah, I think it's I I think nationally that's going to be a big challenge, Shadi. I mean, I, I think yeah, it's a it's a big challenge on the West Coast this year for sure. You know, I I think the the California in general is the most restrictive state I can think of across the country. So. You know, maybe like you know, we've already seen some California schools like San Jose State and Fresno State are already kind of um, pulling games off their schedule, and so yeah, it's going to be interesting when it comes to the NCAA tournament. I I, ironically though, I think the Big West is is in line to have a really good year. Um, I think the Pac-12 is going to be awfully talented. I I would also say that you know, it's the West Coast does tend to play mostly West Coast games. I you know, I think the old ultimate nightmare is what the big 10 has got. The big 10 is only playing big 10 teams. So I don't know what the selection committee is supposed <laughs> to do with that, but yeah, I, I think, I think it's going to be, it could be a difficult West coast from an NBA selection standpoint. I hope that's not the case. Cause I think there's some really good teams out West, but I do think I would say overall shoddy. I am really um, encouraged by the trend in the WCC in the PAC 12. You know, I, I, I think I wrote this on Twitter I can make an argument, and I think a very legitimate argument, that every single program in the Pac-12 is uptrending right now. And, and I, I know that's counterintuitive, but I really <laughs> believe it. And I, I think I could say the same thing about the Big West, that there's a lot of programs that are really on a good uptick right now. Um, and so how that plays out, we'll see. Like, like always on the West Coast, we'll beat each other up a little bit. But um, I'm excited to see what it looks like.
0: So taking it back to USC, what do they have to do to put together a postseason run this season?
2: Well, I think they, you know, there's enough talent here to do it. So I think, you know, if you're in the Pac-12, if you can get to the first four spots, you you feel really good about yourself. So I I think for USC, can that middle of the order, for lack of a better phrase, kind of carry the day while these younger position players establish themselves? Can the pitching be clean strike throwers? I, I think the one thing I think, USC can't do shoddy. Is give teams extra outs. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have to throw strikes. They're gonna have to play defense and let this position player group kind of find their way. But I, but I think if they stay around early, they're they're not. It's not like they have second tier talent in the Pac-12. I think they just have second tier who's proven and established. And and so if they can hang around they're if you come to the second half of the Pac-12 season and USC is lingering, I think they're very dangerous.
0: And you add, you know, Ted Silva last year. He comes in as the pitching coach, and that's the one thing he was going to focus on is throwing strikes. That's the one thing he proved at Nebraska when he was there is that, you know, his guys were going to throw strikes. So we're gonna, we're going to walk a bunch of people. That's the that's the kind of the Cal State Fullerton uh, motto for pitching is we're going to attack guys constantly. And that was the biggest thing because USC's had big arms after big arm after big arm, but they haven't had guys that will throw strikes enough strikes consistently. Um, to, to be able to be successful so you know how have you seen his impact maybe did you see it at all last year and you know what do you think his impact will be on the pitching staffs going forward
2: yeah I, I'm very encouraged I think you know obviously Gilly and Ted Silver are you know they have that Titan blood in them and I think this is a it, it's going to be really neat to see there's going to be a Cal State Fullerton influence in this program which to me is that west coast offense clean baseball throwing strikes Um, you know, and if you're looking for a model, I look at what Washington has done. Lindsay Meggs has said it, you know, unequivocally that, Hey, I'm trying to be the Cal state Fullerton of the Pacific Northwest and look, you know, that they've had a trip to Omaha. I I think the difference is, and this is no offense to Cal state Fullerton, but USC can recruit a completely different caliber of athlete than Cal state Fullerton can. And, and, you know, I'm not saying Cal state Fullerton doesn't have good players. They do. But, you know, when USC comes knocking on, on the recruiting trail, there's very few schools, that they can't beat, and so I, I think that's going to be a really interesting and fun blend to see—kind of that that Titan version of baseball um, with with you know the, the talent that USC can attract. And so yeah, I, I, I'm in. I think it's going to be—you you can't do it overnight. You can't turn the page overnight. But I think I think this is—it's the right identity. It's the right formula for USC. You know, Mike Gillespie's style was similar to that. And um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I can't wait to see it.
0: Yeah, since Mike Gillespie left, you know he was unceremoniously pushed out, basically uh, by the administration at USC. But since he's left, obviously there's been very little success at USC. Why do you think other coaches have failed since he was he was pushed out? And what will it take for Jason Gill to succeed?
2: Yeah, I would say you know some of it is controllable, probably some of it isn't. I would say, and, and you know I would also say this, Shoddy, that you know Dan Hubbs's 2015 team. I mean, that's very easily an Omaha team. I mean, you, could, you can recreate, you know, do revisionist history, and they actually beat Virginia in that Lake Elsinore regional. That was a really good USC team. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they, they do have very limited postseason experience since, since 2006. I would say the three things that have jumped out to me about USC that have held them back, one is just a lack of a real identity in the program since Skip Gillespie left. I just I, I felt like if you asked me, hey, what are what are the core principles of USC baseball during those years? I, I, I really couldn't answer that question. And so I think I think Jason Gill solves that immediately. Uh, I think they have gotten crushed in the draft. You know, I, I think that's been and, and, and that's hard to control. I mean, anybody says that that's an easy fix, I think, is lying to you. But I will say that a, a shorter draft, which we're almost inevitably going to have, really plays in, in USC's favor. I think the other thing, Shadi, and I think this is really important um, in all fairness to the coaches that have been at USC since Skip Gillespie, if you're a private school in college baseball, h- high academic, high cost uh, in 2021, you can't just roll out the balls with 11.7 scholarships and be good. That- that's not realistic anymore. If you're not going to dedicate some financial aid to your baseball program, you're going to be really far behind you know, I I look at programs of this ilk, you know, Rice, they had that financial aid. Stanford has that financial aid. Duke has that financial aid. Vandy has that financial aid. Now, you know, this is unconfirmed. But what I've understood at USC is they have financial aid, but they also have 30,000 students that are competing for that financial aid. So, again, I I think USC was from an administration standpoint, was in the mindset that, hey, we got 11.7 And we got tradition and let's go get them that, you know, that you're, you're a bottom level salary cap team in our sport at that point. And and I will say this, and this is going to probably sound a little pejorative and critical, but I really feel like USC and you would know this way better than me, Shadi. I feel like their athletic administration is so much more settled right now than it's Mm -hmm. been in a long time. That's just my viewpoint from the outside. And I think that really helps the situation also.
0: Yeah, exactly. I you, I was going to ask you, you know, how difficult it is to win at USC now with with all those things cuz now costs I looked it up $79,000 a year and you have to divide that, you know, 11.7 scholarships between a 35 man roster. So now you're competing, you know, if you give a half scholarship, you know, and you say, "Hey, we'll give you a half ride." You still got to pay $40,000 just to go to school for a year, not for 4 years for a year. So then you go against a, you know, a big West school like Cal State Fullerton, their tuition is much lower, and they give you a half ride. It's much different type of payment that is still being owed there. So we'll see what kind of things change there from the administration standpoint. They are doing some things that should help out the financial aid portion of it. So it'll be interesting to see if that you know helps USC catch up a little bit. But like you said, the draft I think is a really interesting one if it gets shorter. Not only does that keep some players, uh, you, you know, on campus, but it also USC's been, you know, killed by high school players leaving, um, and maybe that gets a couple more really talented high school players to campus. So we'll see if that helps, you know, put, boost up their, their talent level as well.
2: Yeah, I'd be shocked if it didn't, Shadi. And and you know, to your point, when you're USC with a you know eighty thousand dollar price tag, and you know only eleven point seven scholarships, if you think about the math. You're probably going to offer a very large scholarship, let's call it 80 or 90 percent of that, to about 10 or 11 kids. And two things have to happen is those kids have to perform, but they also have to show up. And usually the kids that you're given the big scholarships to are the most attractive in the draft. So, yeah, I would be really – again, Shadi, if if USC baseball was a stock – and I was single and didn't have to run things by my wife, I'd be buying a truckload of it.
0: <laughs> well, I always say, and you know this better, you were an assistant coach at, at Arizona State, but I always say Division One college baseball, Recruiting is the most difficult thing in all athletics. It's just mind blowing, you know, putting it together. It's always interesting to me to to talk to coaches at the area code games and different about how they kind of track all those things and the different charts and things that they're going through to try to see, you know, try to balance all those things. It's just it's just a very unique challenge, I think, for coaches and the ones that can do it best are usually the coaches that are are producing the the most talented teams year after year.
2: No doubt, it's so tricky. I mean, all you can do is. You know, try to get information from your families that you've recruited. You know, what would it take for them to sign a professional contract? You know what what would um what would what kind of money would it take for them to make that life changing decision? And then you talk. You know, the good news is baseball is a very tight knit community, so you always have great contacts in the pro scouting community, and you talk to your scouting uh, contacts and try to figure out, hey, where where does this kid stack up? And, and then you just try to do the math, but you're right, Shadi. It's it's. Um, I, I just think about some of the other coaches and other sports where everybody gets a full ride and they have no draft to to worry about. And it's like, gosh, that that sounds incredibly easy.
0: I, I did also see that uh, recently. I think I saw that that Arizona State, since you did coach there under Pat Murphy in football, recently, I think they offered something like 400 players in the last class or something for for 25 spots. So you can't really yeah. do that in baseball. I mean, even if you're offering everybody, uh, you know, 0.1%, it's, you know, a, a ridiculous endeavor to offer that many kids. Um so baseball's a little bit recruiting is a little bit different in that regard. So one team across town that recruits very, very well, and USC fans aren't going to like to hear this, but UCLA looks damn good once again under John Savage. How do you see the rest of the Pac-12 shaping up this season?
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, not only is UCLA what, what I, I think the clear favorite in the, in the PAC 12, but I think they are an absolutely legitimate threat to win a national championship. So, and, and, you know, they're going to win another national championship under John Savage. I'm convinced of that, you know, then it gets really interesting. I think Arizona is really um, they are a very interesting team. They've got four elite elite freshmen um, that got to campus because of the small draft. And then they sprinkle in a little bit of an older team with some steadier players. You know, you know they're going to be offensive. I think their pitching is going to be a lot deeper than normal, and Nate Yeski's in year two there. You know, I think Arizona State—they're—they—it's um, they, just a flip flop of last year's roster. They lost those four elite hitters, but they do return a ton of pitching, and I think they'll be outstanding defensively. I think they're sneaky good, but you know, I've got conviction that UCLA is the best team. I'm fairly convicted Arizona is the second best team, but after that, shoddy. I mean, it is a dart throw. You know, Arizona State because of the pitching that returns. Oregon State is kind of an old-school Beaver team. They do have some high-end pitching. Kevin Abel's back. I think they're going to play elite defense. A lot of question marks offensively. Washington has really kind of under the radar, upgraded their talent level. I think they are a very dangerous team. You're going to hear a name, Tyson Guerrero, a left-handed pitcher they got that was at Washington State two years ago that is a top 50 picks talent. Um, I think Oregon under Mark Wasikowski has very rapidly upgraded their talent level. Cal is an intriguing team, shoddy because they they're older. They've got some names you'll recognize, but they were five and eleven last year, and they didn't have any fall baseball. So I, I California's they're a little bit of a wild card because if that older pitching comes together, they could do some damage. Um, and then I've got USC, which again I think they've got a very good talent level. It, you know, so and then I'll throw Stanford in the next. You know, kind of in that group of. Three through nine, I mean, I think you could jumble these guys. You could just pick them out of a hat. The the thing I'm struggling with Stanford is they just struggled so badly last year. It's a very young position player group, and they had no fall baseball. So it's hard to see them making massive leaps. But they do have Brendan Beck back on Friday nights. Washington State and Utah are older. They are better. They're almost 10th and 11th just by default. But it would not shock me at all to see them finish in the middle of the pack
0: yeah we'll see what Brian Green can do at, at Washington State. He was really able to turn that New Mexico State program around really quickly, so I'm curious to see what he does up there with the Cougars as well. runes gotta ask you. We talked a little bit with Jason Gill about Mike Gillespie and his his impact on him. Give me your favorite skip story. you know you had a coach against him at Arizona State, you know from your playing days at Notre Dame. what's your best your best skip story from your interactions with him as a player coach, media member? You know, with Mike Gillespie, he, he was a, a unique man, a unique coach. That everyone has a unique story from him. Give me your best skip story.
2: So, Shadi, I would tell you, I, you know, first of all, let me set it up. You, coaching as a young coach, being on the same field, coaching against a Mike Gillespie, it was such an honor, such a privilege. The guy was so good. Um, he was so intimidating, too, by the way. I mean, his presence on the field scared the bejesus out of you. And and not only that, you know, my, my first stretch at ASU was 99 to 2004. I mean, USC was, those were really, really good teams. And so, you know, just the way his teams played, they were so good. They were so tactical. Uh, Anything was, you know, he would run any offensive play at any time. Uh, So, so there was that part of it. And then, so, you know, like you just, you always, as a young assistant coach, it's, it's he's a legend, right? And so you don't even know if he knows your name. <laughs> and and back in that time, we, our rivalry with USC was not friendly. Murph, <laughs> uh, you know, my boss, Pat Murphy and Skip became very close later. But at this point, it was bitter enemies. And, you know, and we were good and they were good. It was, they, they were hard fought, fought games. And so I'll never forget. There was always a Pac-12 coaches meeting in the fall every year. And it was held at LAX. And Murph never liked going to those things. So it was the fall of 2001 and Murph at the last minute said, you know what, I am not going to that nonsense. Runes, you're going. And and I'm like, you know, Murph, I I don't know if you didn't read the instructions closely, but this is a head coach's meeting (laughs) and I am not a head coach in any way, shape or form. He's like, well, yeah, enjoy (laughs) And so I go I, and Shadi, I can't even tell you how nervous I was. I mean, I felt so intimidated. Think about the coaches in the room, Andy Lopez, Pat Casey, Mark Marquis, Mike Gillespie. You know, it, it just Ken Knutson, just on and on. And, and, and then Mike Rooney sitting there and I'm like, goodness gracious. So, you know, I'm sitting there by myself. No one's really saying anything to me. Those meetings are kind of like a bull ring. You know, there's a lot there's the, the R in that room is, is hyper tense. And so I sit down. And out of nowhere, Mike Gillespie sits next to me. And I, Shadi, I'm, I couldn't even breathe in that moment. Like now, <laughs> what was an intimidating scenario is is now I may just die right here in this chair. And so, you know, in, in what felt like a million minutes, just silent, awkward, you know, time. Then out of nowhere, Mike Gillespie turns to me and says, hey, Runes. And then his next comment was, so you bleeping bleepers are going to have that Pedroia kid for the next four years. (laughs) And, you know, it was it was such and it was, you know, I I went from feeling super small to feeling like a million bucks in a moment that Mike Gillespie called me by my name, you know, talked about Pedroia and it really broke the ice for me in that whole meeting. But it was, you know, just one of those things that you'll never forget the rest of your life because, uh, you know, the guy was a legend. And in a situation that was clearly very difficult and awkward for me, you know, first world problems, but, you know, he, he was such a, a big person in that moment. And so, you know, he's one of my heroes in coaching and, you know, his losing him is a great loss for all of us, for our sport. You know, I, I get to do the 2011 Super Regional when they lost to Virginia in game three on a walk-off and, you know, I, I'll never forget the grace of the man, you know, after the press conference in which he was so you know he was the epitome of class you know he, he came up to me and says look at you runes on espn aren't you big time and i'm just like you know I, I, he didn't even want to again I, I could go on and on shot he just he's he's one of my all-time favorite coaches it he, he, we all missed him terribly and um just one of the all-time greats no doubt about it
0: Thanks so much for sharing that, Runes. That was great. And, and thanks so much for joining us and hopping on the, the Herd It on the Sidelines podcast. Really appreciate you providing your insight to us.
2: You got it, man. Anytime.
0: From one USC rival to another, from having Notre Dame grad Mike Rooney on to now, to close out the show, I want to bring on UCLA head coach John Savage because John Savage was the pitching coach underneath Mike Gillespie on USC's last National championship team in 1998, so I wanted to bring him on to get his favorite skip story and give us a little bit of insight to that 1998 team. Sav, so thanks so much for joining us. You know, tell me about that 1998 team that won the national championship. And as a pitching coach, what was it like for you with a championship game that ends up being 21 to 14?
3: Well, shotgun. First off, that season we were so competitive all the way through. You know, we did have some, some moments where we, uh, you know, we did not win the conference that season. I believe we finished, I believe in second or third place. And we got into a regional. We went to Clemson, won that regional, went to Omaha. That was the last year of the 16 regionals. And 99 was the first year of the super regionals. So, you know, we, we got it out of Clint. We got out of Clemson and, you know, that team was so, so good defensively. I mean, Morgan Ensberg, Wes Rachel, Seth Davidson, Rob Gore was the infield. Eric Munson, obviously a high first-round pick, was the catcher. We had Greg Hanoyan, Jeremy Freitas, uh, Brad Ticehurst. Uh, we had a terrific outfield. I mean, it was a really good defensive team. And then, of course, you had Seth Atherton and Rick Courier and Mike Penny, and of course, Jack Krawcheck as a closer and. I, I still remember those guys like it was yesterday and it was just a really fun team to be around and a team that um, you know really stepped up in Omaha clearly and and won a national championship and it was just you know so fun to be a part of it.
0: Tell me one thing that you took away from your time coaching at USC under Mike Gillespie that, that has been beneficial for your your coaching career as you've gone through through the process and ended up at UCLA and winning a national championship with the Bruins.
3: I think just game management. He was the the, the the game manager of of college baseball. I mean, one of the most elite coaches, really, in the history of the game. Uh, he was the coach of all coaches, and people looked up to him. So I would say game management. I would also say confidence uh, in your players. He had tremendous confidence in in our players at USC. Uh, I learned timing. Uh, in terms of communication, his timing was pristine. I mean, he was just—he knew when to say it, when not to say it, when to, you know, when to be firm with it, uh, when to, you know, pull back a little bit. Uh, he just had such feel for players, for teams, for games, for umpires, for for just moments, and he was just so comfortable uh, in his own skin, and that's what I admired him so much. Cared about his assistance, he cared about my family. Lisa and I grew to have an unbelievable relationship uh, with Mike and Barbara. And, uh, you know, it was just really something that I always look back at and and it really helped me grow as a, not only as a person, but certainly as a coach. And Skip, Skip had his way of, of just, uh, you know, commanding the room and a guy that, people looked up to just in terms of his baseball IQ and his ability to win games in tight games. Uh, I think he was as good as there was ever uh, really in the, uh, the history of the college game.
0: And it's unfortunate that he's not going to be with us anymore, but he, he will forever live on in some of the skip stories that everyone has. Everyone has their own unique story. What's your favorite skip story?
3: <laughs> I mean, there there's so many, I mean, so many memories uh, I would say that when we got beat by LSU in the first game we gave up eight, eight home runs the most home runs really I think in the history of the uh, College World Series for one game and I think we got beat and it was gorilla ball right I mean the ball <laughs> that's what LSU called you know their their program at the time and they they the wind was blown out at Rosenblad and you know how offensive that ballpark could be during the day and, and it was, it was very offensive the first day of the tournament and clearly it was very offensive the last day of the tournament. But in between there, the wind was blowing in. And if you saw our scores, you know, that's when we beat LSU twice and beat Mississippi State and we beat Florida and, you know, we pitched and played defense is really as, as well as anybody there and, we we get beat by LSU and, you know, the, the clubhouse is pretty somber and, and, you know, guys are down and, you know, it's a double elimination tournament, obviously. So, you know, we're not out of the tournament and and it was quiet and uh, everybody would start packing up their, you know, their gear and about ready to walk out. And I'll never forget that, that, that Skip goes, hey, does anybody in this room not believe that we are the best team in this in this tournament? And does is, is anybody in this room doesn't believe that we can win this tournament? And just the, just the confidence that I saw that he portrayed and also invested in his players was so genuine. And we, we rolled off all those wins. We come back and win a national championship. And I was just so lucky to be a part of that. I was clearly fortunate and I'll just I'll never forget those words that he you know it, it was a tough loss I mean the, the place is all LSU 25 30,000 people they're rolling I think they, they might even been defending champs it was just um I'll never forget that speech it, it wasn't a big a long speech it was a very short speech but it was such a meaningful uh message uh that the guys loved and and took it to heart and clearly he came back out and and we ended up winning the whole thing. So that, that story in itself uh, is one that I'll always remember when I was, uh, you know, as a, as a pitching coach at USC.
0: That's great stuff. Another classic skip story. Thanks to John and all our guests for sharing their favorite skip story with us. Mike Gillespie will definitely be missed by all in the college baseball community, especially in Southern California. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Herd it on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle Podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Sprattling, saying thanks again to Jason Gill, Mike Rooney, and John Savage for coming on the show, and to all of you for listening. Make sure you guys check out the Sherman and Sherman Oaks, and make sure you come back and join us for the next episode. Peace out.